0: Welcome to the podcast of The Urban Mystic. In Season 3 we explore the tension between faith and experience and tease this out as a distinction between faith and relationship. This dovetails well with our value for intimacy with God and encourages us to explore what we can expect a relationship with God to mean for individuals and communities intentionally practicing the presence of God. This episode is a bit of an anomaly in this series as it was recorded close to a year ago. This is an exploration of post-secularism which shapes much of my thinking about the development of faith and spirituality in our ever-changing world. The conversation is between myself, Steve and Professor Christa Lombard who was the supervisor for my masters. Stephen and I have had a wonderful series of of conversations with some f- fantastic people that have made their way into ministry and then made their way out of ministry, and so there's these various layers of of deconstruction as they as, as they move away, and so I'm thinking of this as a series of conversations that that takes place afterwards, because on one hand we've got this process where where people are quite disillusioned with their religions. And although we're tackling it in the context of, of Christianity, it's by way of proxy for people of other religions who are going through the same, same kind of thing. In the background, we've got the, the secularist thesis. We've got the, despite people having secularized, people are deeply spiritual and or religious. And the language here isn't as clear as the language is when looking back a couple of hundred years to the establishment of religion. So this is really an area that you're very much into. It's a, it's a great privilege to be able to pick up a conversation like this with you.
1: And you help me as well because I'm working on all kinds of projects relating to this. Uh, some is academic projects, some are consultancies that I'll be doing for churches, etc. So you help me as well formulating these ideas more clearly. So my thanks to the both of you, Stephen.
0: I thought perhaps we could start with a, w- with a personal question, if that's okay with you. What was your earliest experience of God and how did that lead you on the journey to being where you are as a as a prof that's working the field of spirituality
1: that's a short question with a long answer but I'll try to give I'll try to summarize my life in 30 seconds or
0: less it, it's a deceptively <laughs> simple question with the expectation that there's there's a tremendous amount behind that door
1: I grew up in a Christian home so religion faith was active part of church life, home life, school life, and then went to study at the Rand afrikaans University, as it was called then, now the University of Johannesburg, to study communications. And halfway through a master's in journalism, I decided to study theology. Up to that point, I'd been very, not only religious, but pietist, that very self-centered, touchy-feely, emotive kind of religion. Of which I spoke very badly uh, some years uh, until some years ago, the, until I realized that was just part of my journey, and for many people that is part of their journey too. So it's just an expression of, of religiosity in formal terms, expression of faith in uh, more real terms. Through my studies, so I had the communications background, which of course helps you to understand things in a certain way. And and then my theology studies ended up with a doctorate in Old Testament on Genesis 22 and a doctorate in communication studies on the use of the Bible in politics and in church debate. And my appointment is in Christian spirituality, which means the experience of faith. How do you make sense of your life of faith? What are the impulses that work? How work in on you and how do you give expression to those impulses and from this mixed bag uh, this mixed bag of personal impulses, academic impulses, etc also came across the topic of post-secularism as a research topic, it's one of the research topics that I specialize in, which is a strange term, people don't relate to it that easily, but it's been around since uh, the 80s already but only become popular over the past that 10 to 15 years, really. Um, I can say a little bit more about where the concept comes from.
0: The term a lot of people are, are possibly more familiar with is, is our terms related to modernism and postmodernism. Right. And so, could you perhaps just uh, contextualize? what post is or, or frame it uh, possibly in relation to those other two, two terms and concepts?
1: I will first formulate it historically, but then I'll go back and point out that it's in fact not, not only historical analysis. When people analyze how these things developed, developed uh, historically, they would say there would be a, a pre-modern phase which, in which the worldview is mythical and science is subservient to religion. And God forms the big picture in people's lives, in society's lives, and everything works under control of church, of God, of faith. A life is unimaginable without that kind of overarching umbrella of God, church, faith. Um, The idea could exist of atheism, but in practical life, it just didn't come to the fore. The, The church was always involved in it. From more or less the time of the French Revolution, that's just one point. There were so many impulses that made this happen, but more or less from the time of the French Revolution, we can speak of the modernist phase, where rationalism becomes dominant, where everything has to be understood in order to be valid, and it's understood in very particular ways, or else it doesn't ring true. Whereas in pre-modernism, you, are, you relate something to God, and people say, ah, then I understand. In, in the modern era, if, if you relate it to certain key concepts which is not religious, then people say, Ah, now I understand. It just rings true, it feels valid, so it works. Um, and we, we still live in, in the, the mainstream of that modernism. It was softened during the era of postmodernism, um, which is roughly from the beginning of the previous century, where uh, the harsh scientific mindset, the harsh ideologies are somehow softened, relationships become more important, and uh, how ethics play a role in life becomes important as well. In both these phases, in both modernism and postmodernism which is actually more or less the same thing. But let's just speak of phases for the moment, the the, the two phases. In in both of them...
0: Perhaps even uh, of of an early modernism and a later modernism. Exactly that.
1: That will work very well. In in both of these, uh, religion doesn't play a dominant part. In fact, religion is marginalized in modernism because it doesn't fit in the scientific uh, mindset. You cannot prove God. So what you cannot prove uh, doesn't exist. And even if it does exist, then you don't give it uh, space in society. So it should ideally, religion should then ideally play no role in politics, economics, etc., in that understanding of it. In postmodernism, things change. Um, because relationships become important, etc., people realize that there is very strong religiosity among people, but still, because it's part of the modernist framework, you cannot acknowledge the reality of God or the the concrete substance of religion because you cannot see it. So you describe it as a metaphor or a language game. In post-secularism, that means after the secularist phases, of modernism, postmodernism. In post secularism, we're taking more seriously, and it's a reflex of the thing, it's not planned, taking more seriously that people regard the faith really seriously. Even if you say you cannot prove God, that doesn't mean for people who believe that they, they think they believe in something that does not exist. Um, that is unfair to expect that of people. People, in fact, believe in a concrete God. In the language of postmodernism, you cannot reduce people's faith to a language game or a, a metaphor which gives them meaning. Um, you can describe it that way from the outside, but people who live a life of faith do not say, oh, I believe in God because this metaphor gives me meaning or because there's a language game that gives me some coherence in my life. No, they really believe in God to the point that they are willing to give up their lives for God. In most things, they were given a choice God or the alternative, and if you choose God, you die, in most situations, people say, okay, then I choose God and I die. That's a pretty radical choice to make. And we're taking that more seriously. I say we. Societies broadly are taking it more seriously, which means there are changes in laws happening. The way that people relate to faith, to God, is uh, is different. The uh, some of the impulses that, that led to this realization that, in fact, we live in a post-secular phase is uh, sociological surveys that were done, um, surveys done by the Pew Research uh, Institutes in the USA, which is completely de- demographic studies. They're not out to prove that faith exists or God exists. They just analyze what are faith trends. And it turns out people are much more religious than... During the modernist and postmodernist phase, people would accept, especially uh, intelligentsia would accept. It, uh, this whole postmodern, uh, no, post secular realization that in fact faith has the whole time been playing such a dramatic role in people's personal lives and in societies has been quite an eye opener for academia because for decades, in fact for longer than a century, the intelligentsia has been telling. Uh, themselves, or we have been telling ourselves, that no religion will pass away, it will become simply a historical phenomenon, or some obscure small groups. But rationality is such that humans would develop past religion. It turns out all of that stories that, that, that the uh, leaderships have been telling each other was inaccurate. And that's leaderships in academia, in politics, in economic world, in the cultural world, uh, and re- The reason for that is that they went to the same kind of universities, read the same kind of books, which uh, formed a kind of a canon from which you speak. And then the idea is passed on and held very dearly until you realize through your research that, uh, my goodness, faith is not gone. It has changed, certainly. People are not reading Calvin's Institutes on a Sunday afternoon.
0: <laughs> I, I don't know many people who, who, who would admit to ever having done that. That's
1: true. <laughs> But the idea of of God not having a role in people's lives or not having a role in society, by by far the larger number of people do not believe that. They in fact believe God is concrete in their lives in some way or another. They may not wish to give it a name. They may not wish to call their faith even religion. They would call it spirituality. They may look for different metaphors, or even in some extreme cases, accept no metaphors, no language about God. Just believing that there is something like a God, but don't even want to call it God, because then there are all kinds of past associations that cloud the concept. So you even have those forms of expression of faith, but faith is very much
0: alive even the the beliefs that people hold that this kind of stuff that there's this that there's this progress and as people are more educated religion's going to pass away, even the holding to that in some ways is a faith position it's not a it's not a position that's grounded in in, in evidence I think one thing that's interesting is if anyone watches things like Seth Mark Farlane's the Orville or anything like that, you find that 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 this very concept is very much a part of of media and it's very much put forward that this is the case you know and 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 yet in many ways the the language that people have when they say things like I'm spiritual but not religious people are playing with terms that are quite uh, popular around you know in terms of you know the idea of what spirituality is varies and intersects with the idea of what religion is and that itself varies and so in many ways the the language for a lot of people is not clear because it is in process so the you know people have a clearer idea perhaps of what they're moving away from Correct. than what it is that they're moving towards. Correct and,
1: and that is quite natural because to put the divine in terms that are human is by definition setting yourself up for failure. It is something that you experience as quite real but how do you describe it and, and uh, because it is such a primary sensation the the the, the experience of the presence of God or the experience of the role of, say, the Bible or the church or faith in your life. It's such a primary experience. And religion is not unique in that. You have that with all primary experiences. Taste a glass of wine and try to put to words what you taste. You can use such metaphors as a slight aftertaste of green pepper and green grass or something. But if I describe that to you and you listen to it rationally, it sounds like nonsense. And do you taste in the wine? Can you experience that taste? No, you can't. It has to be a primary experience. And it's like that even if you touch somebody's hand, or if you watch a dance and you try to describe it, or you dance yourself, or the sensation of a kiss, try to put these things into words, these primary sensations, and you cannot, you fail every time. And religion is the same as that. It's a primary sensation. To put it to words, you can and you do, but you have to be very humble in doing so because you cannot convey it, you cannot capture it in words.
0: The old nemesis of both uh, classical religion and modernity, humility.
1: (laughs) Along with that, the the point that you made about the way that people speak about religion, modernism has, has trained all of us, or all of us who have been touched by Western-style thinking and Western-style democracies have trained us to somehow accept that the idea that God does not exist is the zero position. That is kind of the, the basis from which everybody should uh, start. So that every time if, if you explain that you do believe, you have to please explain. You're the one who's slightly in trouble. You're the one who's abnormal. And now I have to make a case for you, because the normal position is there is no God or there is no religion and faith shouldn't exist. But as, as you pointed out a few moments ago, uh, Tom, that, that, that is in fact such a false presupposition, because if you say, I don't believe in God, that is in fact the position in faith. If you say religion should play no role in life, that is not a zero position. That, that is the position that you take. You find that in some cases, even from Hinduism, but usually from atheism, that the point is made that, no, we shouldn't train children in any religion. We should expose them to any religion until they, say, 16-year-old or 18-year-old, when they can make these decisions for themselves. All you are doing then is then, you're exposing them to this form of religion, that somehow religion should be a rational choice and you should grow up neutral, uh, you should grow up free from religion in order for it to be valid. That is a very religious point of view.
0: It's the it's classic conundrum of, of, of someone basically putting forward that the positionless position is a non position as yes. opposed to the, the positionless position is, a, is actually a position and it's a very value laden, a, a, a very conceptually dense position to try to hold to. It's not neutral by any means. It's not
1: neutral by any means and a, and a very good example of that is if I speak and I say, I have no accent when I speak. There's no logic to that. It just simply assumes that uh, I, I then assume that my accent is the standard accent. And anybody who speaks differently to me, somehow, they have to explain themselves. If I say I have no, I have no accent when I speak, it is, in fact, nonsense. I do have an accent. It may be the standard accent. I know in my case, that's not true. But if I speak Queen's English, that may be the standard accent. Uh, in some kind of ideal world. But that doesn't mean it's not an accent. It certainly is an accent. The same with faith. If I say I have no no faith, that's fine. But that is the religious position that you take. If you say religion should play no role in public life, as in France, for instance, the position strongly held, that is a very religious position that you take. Uh, It is not a position free of religion. It is a highly religious position that you take. And it should be acknowledged that. And what post-secularism helps us is to uh, acknowledge this, to say uh, that, that the, the, the uh, little blanket that we covered our eyes with during modernism, to see that, to to think that, that there is a value-free position, it in fact doesn't exist. Post-secularism exposes a little bit, now exposes completely um, the, these kinds of false presuppositions, suppositions that we make peace with who we are as human beings, who we are as society.
0: This is one of those challenging things because we we like to think in neat blocks, and we often train to think in neat blocks that there's there's a neat change over between hosti- uh, you know, historical eras related to particular events or dates, and you know, as people we like to hinge things on particular dates and times and figures and and that kind of stuff. And of course, that ends up being a bit of a mythical reconstruction. Exactly. That. You know, in, in many ways, these these aren't hard and fast eras. They're actually phases and they overlap each other.
1: Indeed. Indeed. And, and even phases creates the idea that something wasn't present and now it is present and something that used to be dominant has, has disappeared. But that's not true. All of these things are present at the same time. It is just that one is more dominant than the other. It has always been the case for as long as, you, as, as, as we have text that there are some people who can launch the idea that God doesn't exist. Um, But that doesn't become dominant. Only in modernism does it become dominant. There were always people who had the idea that you can use language as the most powerful metaphor um, to explain anything. But it is only during postmodernism that that becomes the dominant metaphor. So so these are not phases. They are all concurrent um, developments with the one aspect smothering the others or pushing the others down, sometimes just a little bit, sometimes quite dramatically. During pre-modernism, such a mindset, the divine is always the dominant. Everything has to fit in with the divine will, and we orient our lives fully towards that. In modernism, it changes. In the natural sciences, for instance, we we look for uh, everything in the smallest possible components. We, We search in order to understand matter, we search for atoms and electrons and even the smaller things that constitute that. So the, sm- the smaller we can break things down into, the better we say we understand it. And that makes sense then that in modernism, God falls out of the picture because God is a huge concept. It is, too, it is too big for an analysis that goes into the smallest possible constitutive element. You cannot see God there. Well, you can from a position of faith. But if you use a microscope to analyze or a telescope to analyze the skies, you will not see God there because you always look for the, for the furthest reaches, the smallest components that you can actually see. God is too big a concept to be
0: noted in that. I constantly refer to a psychotherapist named Esther Perel. Uh, I don't know if you know her, but she, she I do. talks of the- of the big change over in society is actually our model of relationships. Now, one thing that we can't see with telescopes or with microscopes is the relational is relationships between a good and their relational connections. A good yeah. And I feel like in the same way, this, this, the whole problem of God as a, as it presents itself in modernity and, and changes, you know, the problem of God actually changes from the classical thing, you know, the classical theology, theodicy of, you know, if God is all good and there's evil, then either God can't be all good or God can't be all powerful, you know, et cetera, et cetera, which I think is a pretty dumb and tried and tested formulation. And yet you still see it as a, as a dominant thing, like in um, Batman versus Superman, you know, uh, you know, it's, it, it's put forward, like it's this, it's this massive, Breakthrough in uh, in thinking that the that the arch villain has, but when you think about it, those I feel like those concepts, these old concepts, are constantly being recycled, and that the conversation's not moving on. So in some ways, when when I speak to people, a lot of people are still dealing with uh, with modern ideas and Christian institutionalism and religious institutionalism dealing with with and still trying to adapt to the modern world rather than having moved on towards the postmodern and in some cases yes they're grappling with that but but i i i hardly have any conversations with people that are grappling with post secularism and although it's a, it's a deep area of interest of mine that i'm i'm loving the journey of starting to dive into, you know, I I love the one phrase that you have where you where you speak of the concept of God being too big for mon, modernism. And I was wondering if you could just dive into that a bit more, because it's, it's, it's so wonderfully encapsulated. And yet for people that are modernists, they go, well, the concept of God is ridiculous. Why would we even entertain the notion in some ways?
1: And, and in that man, mindset, of course, it makes complete logical sense, because you look for the small things and you cannot therefore see, see the bigger picture. It plays out differently in the humanities also looking for the smaller but in the humanities you, you cannot find atoms and electrons but you look for the smallest constituent elements of, of anything in society how did this come to be and therefore you analyze everything Historically.
0: The, the hard science, you know, the, the, the cosmology. You know, cosmology, I feel, is in some ways where things really started. You know, the ball with the Copernican revolution and observational science and that, which which meant that the, the social sciences were really the errant stepchild, you know, having to fight the way to actually establish itself to be even recognized as science. And in some ways, you still have the disrespect for that today amongst many You're
1: people. completely right. And the way that the humanities try to... Uh, compensate for that was to adapt a historical orientation to everything that has to do with humanity. And I'll give an example for that. Getting to humanities, the uh, emphasis in humanities becomes the historical. And you see that in all kinds of ways. If uh, Freud, for instance, analyzes people's psychological illnesses, he looks at your history, If Marx analyzes what went wrong with this awful form of capitalism that he had to deal with, he looks at how it developed developed historically to this point. We see that in, in all respects in our own lives as well. If you make a political analysis of what is happening in South Africa, right at this moment, people describe to you how it developed to this point, and the moment people describe within modernism, how things developed to this point, how things came to be here, what are the constituent elements? Then we say, oh yes, we understand. Now we know how this came about. And it pulls the kind of sense of satisfaction inside you that now we understand. The moment you understand something historically, then you're happy with it. You see that, for instance, in the, in the biblical sciences that uh, people make the analysis of the biblical texts. Difficulties because you have these contradictions in the Bible, and you have it seems to be conflated texts, etc. And the moment Bible scholars have analyzed what are the possibilities, how did these things come about, how did how did these texts develop, then they're happy. Now we understand, we we know what happened with the text. We also, at the same time, understand the dissatisfaction that the broader church could have with it or that most believers would have with it. Because now we understand how the text came to this point, but that is not truly understanding yet. We still want the bigger picture. But Bible scholars living from the modernist, working within the modernist framework, have analyzed how this came to be. It fulfills the sense of satisfaction. We now understand the problem in the text, and now let's find another text and we do the same. Whereas people who have a wider frame of reference who want to know but how does this relate to the big picture, they want to know, but what does this mean? So uh, what does the Bible say for my life of faith, or what I should do, etc. So here you see modernism and pre-modernism, not as different phrases, but as different uh, simultaneous impulses in the lives of people. Then comes post-modernism, which uh, the, the historicism doesn't quite work, because now we have analyzed how the things stick together, but what about that then? And then they start analyzing relationships and how things stick together, uh, what, what uh, are the influences, and then the dominant metaphor in order to explain these things becomes language. It becomes the way in which uh, all things to do with humanity is explained. You find humans being described as a text with certain things that give, uh, give meaning to you. You find narr- narrative therapy becoming Quite dominant religion becomes a metaphor or a language game it becomes very attractive to read uh, the Bible in this way as well so the, the narrative approach the semiotic approach, the structuralist approach approach of reading the text becomes important you do not look how the text came up to this point where it is now you take the text as it is now and you look for the interrelationships either are the characters re- relate to each other or are the different words to relate to each other. And so everything becomes a language game within post modernism. The problem with that is a, a, a very strong constituent part of post modernist thinking is that not, there is no outside referentiality. A text is a world unto its own. If, if you read Derrida, for instance, or the people who worked in the, in the wake of Derrida, uh, you, you find these concept, concepts constantly. It was called New criticism, way before Derrida, in the beginning of the 1900s, new criticism and analyzing texts, where the text is a world unto its own. Uh, you see that, for instance, in, in analyzing poetry, that you do not ask the question, what did the poet mean by this? Do not ask the question, what does the word that the poet here used? What, what did it refer to in, in the life world uh, of the culture? You simply ask, what does this metaphor mean within this text? And from there, you draw meaning, and in fact, quite universal meaning. So within postmodernism, the basic sense of understanding has moved from the historical to the linguistic. The moment I can explain something in language term, as a language game, then people get this innate sense of satisfaction. Now I understand.
0: That I've explained it a way that there's no, there's, there's no reality behind it. It's just important to you because, exactly that. because you're stuck in you're stuck in Exactly
1: that. And, and, and you don't have to explain why God uh, does exist or doesn't exist because it's just a language game. Of course, the, the existential implication for, for you if you are religious is as bad as with modernism. In modernism, basically, God doesn't exist because you can't prove it. In postmodernism, God is a language game or an or a identifying metaphor. That is as bad, because God still doesn't really exist. It's just a language game. And postmodernism accepts that these kinds of ways of thinking about the divine is inadequate. People do not live like that.
0: And also that people don't, they don't relate to the divine as though the divine is one singular concept you know people in different parts of the world relate to different things and they almost yes it plays the same kind of role of commitments you know the different concepts of the divine occupy the same kind of psychological space in some places they even occupy the same kind of legislative spaces and and roles you know across cultures and of course as other societies modernize, they don't necessarily secularize, you know, we wouldn't look at the, the UAE as though it's, it, it's not modernizing. Exactly.
1: Turkey, Turkey is a good example of that, except lately, with uh, the past two or three years, there's been some uh, interesting politics, let's put it that way. And, But you put your finger on something quite important. One shouldn't think that these ways of thinking, the pre-modern, the modern, the post-modern, the post-secular, is universal. It, It isn't. In Africa, for instance, there was never the idea that religion would disappear. Even in countries which adopted as much of democracy as they did or adopted as much of communism, as they did within Africa, both of which philosophies, both of which political systems, uh, classically do not recognize the presence of the divine. But Africa nowhere got rid of the idea of God active in society or of the metaphysical uh, disappearing from society. In the USA, it played out quite differently as well. The whole modernism thesis never worked in the USA because the USA has not only always been religious, but been quite fundamentalist, fundamentalistically religious, whether it's a liberal or conservative religion in their terms. Of course, that means something else in other positive world. But whichever way, whichever form of Christianity had been adopted within a certain part of certain community in the USA, they were quite fundamentalist in that. In China, yet again, it plays out in a different way. In South America, yet again. In India, yet again. But because these concepts have been uh, so well developed within. Western and westernized academia. That's number one. And number two, because of the cultural influence from the, that part of the world, from the European context across the world, it is useful to use this kind of terminology to give us something to work with. It is the same, with the, for instance, with the concepts of Generation X, Y, and Z. It's American concepts when you, when you analyze uh, the different generations. But the fact that it is so well developed means that you can use it. For instance, in South Africa, we realize it's not the same things, different characteristics, but now at least we have something concrete, well developed to work with rather than eriferic concepts which are very difficult to put towards them
0: one specific culture in this case the, the european and the, and the post-european uh, them developing that has has enabled others to understand generational change and cultural change and cultural progression the, the challenges is has always been that a certain people people have, have seen the whole world through a particular lens. You know, if we go back to colonialism and decoloniali- decolonization, that kind of stuff. But even that is, it's like a, it's a an historical antecedent to, to where we're at. We can, we can appreciate those contributions within their context without allowing them to completely determine and speak as though they're the, the, they're the only window that anyone can see things through and that they're somehow universally true.
1: Precisely. And, and even if you want to reject it completely, if you want to throw a stone away, you have to pick it up first. So pick up the stone, then work with the concept and throw it away and then work with something better.
0: Just, just don't tweet about it on the way back from Singapore. <laughs>
1: I'm afraid all social media are bad for academic debate. It doesn't work. There's a reason why academic life progresses over years in uh, scholarly journal articles and in very thick books in order to make their arguments from all sides so <laughs> to summarize something in 30 seconds or or 64 characters or it doesn't work.
0: listening to this there in some ways is zero barrier to entry for 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 people going about their lives today because because many people are starting to think with post secularist ideas or assumptions. Although I can't say that with as much confidence because I don't bump into them as often as modernists. So, so in some ways, I, I think of these worldviews as though they're constellations. They're constellations of discrete paradigms. And depending on how you shuffle them around, you end up with modernism or how you shuffle them around, you end up with post-modernism. You know um does that as a metaphor work for you
1: it, it does and, and these are not things that happen quickly if you, if you say you do not see uh, it, it becoming something dominant in society yet it's because it's a generational thing the, the people in charge of politics businesses universities etc are people who are trained who went, who went to universities inside this atmosphere of modernism so you will still find very strongly those impulses but the people going through the systems now. And uh, for the past 10, 15 years, they sense these things differently. So in 20 to 30 years, they are the state presidents, the CEOs, the vice chancellors. Uh, So then you will find different ways of speaking about it. The the, the idea, for instance, which is thoroughly modernist, that theology has no place at a university because the university is a place of rationalism. And theology is clearly not rational because you cannot prove God. That's typically the rationalist mindset. You still find that in universities. Very few universities have formulated as crassly, uh, but you find those impulses. But the generations who are now studying and will be the vice chancellors, the CEOs, the state presidents in decades to come, will sense these things differently. It, it, as I say, it won't be a return to anything where, the, where religion dominates, but it will be an idea where all expressions of relig- religion, or no, let me rather say most expressions of religions, will be welcome. It doesn't mean atheism will disappear, or the anti-religionist impulses will disappear. In fact, numerically, they will grow. And this will be mostly amongst the intelligentsia. We know that numerically, simply demographically speaking, numerically, the number of atheists in the world are said to grow. But they, will, they grow slower than the number of believing Christians, believing Muslims, for instance. So the proportion in the world of atheists becomes smaller. This is simply demographics. This is not uh, missionary work or trying to convert people. This is simply how things will play out over the next uh, five to six decades based on how they have played out over the past three or four days. So the world is certainly becoming more religious and at the same time, more conservatively religious. People hold on to their faith more dearly, which brings, on the one hand, churches will be very happy to hear that the world is becoming more religious. On the other hand, they will face other difficulties. At at the moment, if you speak to churches and they say, what's your most challenging aspect, they would say secularism, because people think religion is stupid or shouldn't happen or whatever. And and the church leadership are trained into that kind of debate. They can have that debate very well. But the debate is completely different if you're having it with people who acknowledge that their atheism Is a religious point of view. If you have that with a Jewish person, with a Muslim, with somebody who finds the greatest meaning in esoteric crystals, for instance, that debate is different. It is not the survival of religion, it is which religion and how religion and which spirituality is healthy. The discussion on what is healthy spirituality and what is what is bad spirituality—that's almost impossible for us to have. If you ask it at academic conferences, people stand back a little bit um, because the idea of criticizing spirituality is difficult. But clearly, they are bad spiritualities and
0: better spiritualities. It's easy to look at particular cults as though they're errant stepchild and and try to then use that as as language to say you've got to stay within the safety of traditional religions. But the way people express something that's quite fundamental to people, you know, I, I think of in some ways that the words that we use when we talk about religion, spirituality and mysticism, there's an overlap both within individual people what we make of those things in terms of our structures in society and the shared practices that we have in community what what we have as our individual practices and then the the what or the who that we actually connect with when we talk about the, the divide and they're not singular you know we're not singular in culture whatever the transcendent is is not singular expressed in a singular way around the world you know and so in some ways i, I find that there's there's perhaps even a reductionism within modernity that although they want to put everything under of the microscope, they also want to reduce everything to a singular explanation. No doubt,
1: you're
2: correct.
0: When you say earlier that, that history is a base understanding within modern era and that within postmodernism, it becomes language, what are the signs pointing towards in terms of what that is for post-secularism?
1: If you have to reduce it to one, of course, in all these cases, if you reduce it to one, it's very reductionistic, but it gives you just something to hook everything onto.
0: It does give us a map. To, it's a bit of a cheat sheet for people like me.
1: A cheat sheet is a very good expression for this. What we see more and more is the language of experience. And it's quite individualistic at times, but it can be communal as well. It's not necessarily that it does away with the social aspect.
0: Perhaps more relational.
1: Relational, certainly. But it, 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 the way people experience it, the, the, the way it makes them feel is highly important. It is not that it fits with the language game uh, or with the language metaphor. It is not that it is historically exp- explained and therefore people buy into it. It is because it makes sense for me. It gives me meaning in life, a sense of belonging. That becomes the base criterion. That experience becomes the base criterion for being acceptable or not acceptable. You can see, you can use the, the term truth, that this is therefore truth. It resonates as truth. But the, but the term truth has all kinds of connotations that makes it difficult to use in this context. The idea of experiencing my faith, that becomes the, the, the core criteria. And it's not only faith, it, it is everything. You, you see it already in the language people use to market tourism. Come and experience Crete. Come and see it. Not come and study the, 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 the history. Where, where are your roots? No, it's come and experience the place. Uh, restaurants market themselves as a food experience. You find that in all kinds of marketing talk because marketers are very sensitive to picking up terminology that resonates in society. It's part of their job.
0: So in some ways, if we simplify it, we would go history, language, experience as as almost, a, you know, a, a summary terms for, for massive paradigm changes. Correct. When I think back as well, and this, this is perhaps slightly off script of, of what we've been thinking and, you know, uh, perhaps some of the stuff that you, you want to contribute Yeah. But you know the 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 first council for Parliament of World Religions is only around about what was it eighteen ninety three? Something the like top that. Yes. My head. And it's it's the first point where 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 people from different religions, in a sense, as a as a big historical get together, kind of go, oh my goodness, maybe you've got valid experiences. And and we've got valid experiences. What do we make of the differences? And in some ways, a lot of Western people traded the ethnic and religious identity for Eastern religious identities. And then you almost end up with, with the new age within the West as being a, let's import these ideas and put all these different things that we all experience to be true together. And in some ways, I think of them as a, as a precursor towards Postmodernism, not just as an idea and post secular spirituality, not just as a, as an idea or phase, but almost a, a new culture, you know, so, so, so I'm starting to think of it and I, I don't know if I'm necessarily correct in this, but I, uh, but I speak as though I am often. So <laughs> please correct me if I'm, if I'm, if I'm going way off here, that, that in some ways you've got, you've got a, you've got a culture that is emerging, Globally enabled by the internet, where people can wear similar clothes, use similar devices, read similar books, speak similar language, you know, and have a community that is that is global, and in some ways they've got one foot within their local geography and issues that are going on there. But there's almost a the postmodern culture in some ways becomes a bit of a meta culture, you know. Is that is that something I could um, bait you into commenting that on? That is or? certainly
1: the case. The I people, are, you know the term global, global and local all together, and that happens all the time. And marketers, of course, play into that in, in sometimes uh, ways that I find to be a little bit stupid because they will tell you, "Be yourself, find your own identity, buy these," and then you, they offer you twelve or fifteen things, perhaps cell phones or something. But then you're not yourself. That, 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 there's no individualism, individualism in that. You find that in many respects, if you ask people why why did you have a tattoo, they will say, "Oh, to give expression of my individuality, you and five million other people that's not really individuality so there's not much logic in how these things play out we We shouldn't expect logic. there is some form of logic in it it's not that it's completely random, but there's nothing that of progress and linear and that you can plan it mathematically how these things will play out. Certainly all these impulses from the local and the international work on people the whole time. In fact, that has never been different. We are just recognizing that more and more. Um, A very good example is Mapungupwe in uh, the northern part of South Africa, which goes back to, I think, the, the 1200s, where we have African art practiced in Egyptian style with ivory from China. I mean, that's very, that's very international. So <laughs> it's a bit of an extreme example. But there are other examples as well that we have, we have never really been completely local isolated. There are examples, of course. But for the most part, humanity has always been connected. On the other hand, you're always also on your own. I like to explain the thing between individualism and, uh, and communalism in this way. That you can say, I'm a complete individualist. I do that, I do only what I want because I want it. And of course, you can say that, and you can believe that. But you can only say that and believe that because there's a society that has created the ambience, the space for you in order to be there. So there is, no matter how individualist you are, unless you live on the South Sea Island and there's no other human being for a 1,000 miles, for the rest of us, it can be as individualist as you like, but there's a communal aspect. Of it. The, the, vice versa is as true: the community is constituted by individuals the whole time. So all of it is connected.
0: People hold to one or the other, so as a antithetical. You know, the, the the one is against the other, but. You know, even individualism re- relies and self you know, the self-actualization that people can get into, the self-fulfillment, uh, the, the sense of growth as an individual, it actually rests on the foundation of a very conditional and interconnected society that's quite sophisticated. We don't arrive at individualism on our own; we arrive at our individualism collectively. We're all collectively individual.
1: And the, and the experience of faith or the experience of meaning or the experience of life that we, we're going to see become more and more dominant over the next decades. That, that is certainly reflective of that. I really pointed out that it, it will be different for the, how churches communicate, how Christians communicate into this world, because it's no, you don't defend yourself against any longer atheism, but now you have to speak into a multi-religious context. There's also a negative side to it that you will also find more muscular expressions of religiosity, traditionally called right-wing. Whether that's a correct term a good term, I'm not sure. But you will find more and more people, uh, as they become religious and conservative religious, will say, I will do this because the Bible tells me so. And it's fine if you decide you want to not eat pork and not wear clothes that are of mixed fabric, if you want to go that far down the line. But the moment you start forcing other people to do it, the moment it becomes an idea, ideology that hurts other people, there comes some danger. And the examples of the clothes and the pork is, is, is a little bit tongue-in-cheek. But the point I'm making is that the churches, religious bodies, universities are going to have to deal with this as a problem, that people are going to be perhaps overly confident in their faith, overly confident in that the way they do things is right, and therefore everybody else should be doing that too, in order to mediate that, to to channel those kinds of impulses, which can be quite dangerous, both for the health of the religion concerned, no matter which faith it belongs to, but also for the societal health, living together in peace and harmony. So these are the negative things we have to see coming as well.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I feel like in some ways there's a, there's a bit of a change. Of you know, if I think back to conversations that I had with people 20 odd years ago, it, it, everyone was, was grappling with the, with the Eastern notion of, of illusion. Yes. Uh, and, and these days people speak much more about reality as in present reality what they can presently experience and in some ways that is that is coupled with people giving up on classical religious institutions and that but but interestingly enough in doing so, it's almost like they can reclaim a language for God and stay atheist or they can reclaim the language for the real or the present or experience Words. without having to go, we're perpetuating those old traditions. And in some ways, that's one of the big changes and the big grapples for for religion is this interplay between what the individual experiences as their reality and whatever mm you know, whatever come next in terms of their this, practice. I'm finding, or at least what one of the things that I'm frustrated with or conversations that I'm trying to have with people that are, you know, they're unclear. It's almost like people that are trained by the institution are trained, as you mentioned earlier, to deal with particular questions. These present questions around post-secularism, the changes where people are going, you know, what's the emergence of society, they're not trained for and the way of dealing with it is to gaslight it, you know, to, to reject the conversation rather than to be open to it.
1: And you see that in Europe, where classically almost all political leaders have been trained into this kind of thing, that religion does not fit into public society. And now suddenly, with the influx of immigrants, many of whom are Muslim, and Islam has never understood itself as a private religion. It's by definition a public Religion, it has a role to play in society. Classically, Christianity has understood itself too, but because it was housed in the West, it adopted this language of privacy of religion. The political leaders do not know how to handle this. They do not know how to speak about this as a problem. Rather that it's better to ignore it, because there is no language. The, The concepts aren't developed, the arguments aren't developed, the debates are not nuanced, and therefore we see people treating it rather badly. Such things as People should, from other countries should change to become like us in order to be acceptable. Or they should leave their religion at home. Or we are a religion free country. Or that you see in the country, in some places, like for instance in the Netherlands, small little towns, in a long time where religion wasn't uh, that dominant or that strong a force. And then some Muslim immigrants, and suddenly, but like, we are a Christian town whatever that means. And at the same time, at the same time, you see, you see in, 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 as people react not only to Muslim immigrants, but to immigrants from other people, they grab onto Christian rhetoric. They say, we are a Christian nation or society uh, or political party. And therefore, we want to keep these other people away from us. We don't want to allow Uh, huge numbers of immigrants into our country, which is exactly the opposite of the Christian message. The Christian message is the gospel for all, openness for all. We help everybody. The Good Samaritan, two enemies involved.
0: I saw this brilliant picture on 9Gag yesterday. It had a picture of of an Arabic person, like referring to militant Islam, standing with an AK and the Quran under their arm on one side. On the other side, it had a, a woman from the somewhere in America, standing with an AR-15 in one arm and a Bible under the other arm. <laughs> and, and I can't remember what the exact subtitle was, but it was kind of like going, these two are starting to look awfully alike. You know, that there's a, that that militant fundamentalism looks like militant fundamentalism.
1: Exactly that. One of the huge wake-up calls, which in a way led people to realize we live in a post-secular society, it was 9-11. I mean, that is, uh, any form of violence in the name of religion is the worst possible expression of that religion, and nine eleven dawned uh, brought that dawning that many people realize you know what and even if you say no it doesn 't affect me every time you pass through an airport security check and all those machines etc if you pass it that 's nine eleven that was religion that caused it. As I say, a bad form of expression of religion, not the Islam part is bad, but the violence part is bad. And we're going to see that with Christianity more and more. In fact, as we speak about this, yesterday, the uh, famous cartoon in Paris, the cartoon uh, publisher, Charlie Hebdo, which was bombed some years ago, they republished the, uh, uh, the cartoons.
0: Oh, those, uh, those, those drawings of, of exactly. Muhammad. Exactly. That, yeah.
1: pub- that were initially published in Denmark, and the court cases are uh, started running this week in France. So, in order to commemorate this, the uh, the publication republished those cartoons. Wait for the debate to ensue. Already, the the French president has stepped in and he said. He has nothing to say about this. he says he says it is not the role of the President to speak about freedom of expression. This, this is a publication which has its own point of, view. of course he 's completely right. presidents shouldn 't have such an influence no, no political leadership should have the influence on freedom of speech on what could be published. What he did not say a word about is the religious dimensions because he doesn 't see it it is a secularized france he doesn 't see. The religion, the religious dimensions at play. I'm not making a plea that those cartoons should not be published. I studied journalism. I'm all for free, for free press.
0: One of the things to grapple with always, you know, in understanding any sociology or anthropology is the difference between your visible and your invisible markers and boundaries. And so, you know, when trying to make decisions about what my, my, my kids watch, I, 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 I ignore some of those, you know, SNVLP, you know, with age restrictions and, 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 and then make up my own mind and others I respect it just because I know where it's coming from. And I've got a felt sense of that. And, and in some ways, as a, as a, as a Western person, a Western secularized person, I can speak of myself as having faith, but the foundation of my culture is more secularist.
1: I disagree with you. I disagree with you because as you say this, you say you had a felt sense of it. It is your experience, so you experience yourself in these things. But the, the fact that you can relate it primarily to how you experience these things places you suddenly within post secularism. <laughs> I, I,
0: I, I totally I totally agree with you there. So so, <laughs> and I think this is one of the difficulty things in in using in using language is I'm I'm actually trained to think of myself as a secularist when I'm not.
1: Precisely, and all of us. Are, And all of us are like that. And on the other hand, it also shows immediately that these are not phases where we move out of one phase into another phase. It is not like that. All these impulses, the pre-modern, the modern, the post-modern, the post-secular, are all in our minds, in our beings the whole time as we try to make sense of this thing life
0: what i was thinking of by referring to those those age restrictions when it comes to movies and educating my kids is that is that unconsciously it's almost like i've i've got a similar kind of thing on on the inside of my front door that when i open the door and i step out i'm stepping into a society that's got particular boundaries like that but they're not visible and so so i think what's very difficult for western people i was i was talking to someone Commenting on exactly that kind of stuff with the the militant fundamentalism, and she goes, "But I don't care what religion they have. They're they're allowed to have the religion that they want." And I, my response was was to counter that to go, "You don't care in the sense that you do care in the sense that you want to allow them to, but what you mean by that complete it means something completely different to them, because for them it's not just an ethnic and a religious identity; it's a political identity as well." And, and, and what we've got is, is we've got uh, almost like Western secular and post-secular values and ideas that is quite at odds with these non-Western ones. And we've got this tectonic clash between cultures and ideas that is becoming increasingly relevant.
1: What, what post-secularism leads us to do, what the impulses guide us to do is to recognize things more closely for what they are. In the same way as Freud had led people to accept that sexuality is part of everything, in the same way as Marx has led people to accept that money is part of everything and Foucault with power is part of everything, post-secularism leads us to accept again that religion is part of everything. You see it the whole time. You may not recognize it, but you do it the, the whole time. You have it in innocent expressions, such as the nurse in the hospital, you call her sister. Why? because there used to be nuns who called each other sister. So do you, 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 you read the newspaper religiously? Does that mean only on, on Christmas and Easter? No, it means regularly, every day, or every week. Uh, so in, in such simple things, we see already that religion is alive at least in the language that we use. We also see it in other ways.
0: That comes back to a word you used earlier. You used the word religiosity, which is which is one I, I struggle to define because the way it is used is it's a quality or an aspect of what it means to be a person. Is almost what you what you're pointing to. When we've been talking to people with with season two of our podcast, we're talking about the transition from institutional religion to people reclaiming this religiosity as part of the identity and this experience of, of God is real apart from the institution and yet we've still got this this paradigmatic clash between it must be institutional it must be legislated you know for, for someone to be a Christian or in a Christian society let's legislate these classical religious things as opposed to no we don't need to legislate it that way uh,
1: the classic formalization uh, for, f- formulation on that is uh, believing without belonging, Grace Davy, British academic, mm-hmm. uh, r- wrote about that. Believing without belonging,
0: uh, and ch- A- and Derridian religion without religion.
1: Yes, yes. And churches have difficulty with that because churches like people to come to the church, join beyond membership, list, be part of the progress. Then we know where you are in your life of faith somehow, vaguely. Whereas that kind of thing, we should make peace with it. That that. The churches won't disappear, but much of the lives of faith of people happen completely independently of the church.
0: And, and interestingly enough, to, to be a part of the church and to be drawn in is to be drawn into the history. Yes. And in some ways, that goes back to that modernist yes. paradigm. If you are in continuity with this history then then we, you've got an explanation, you've got a grounding, you've got a place.
1: Yes. And, and many people don't want that, number one. Number two, many expressions of religiosity, of faith, is in fact an unknowing continuation of these expressions of faith. I'll give two extreme examples. The one is uh, quite famous in the uh, music world. You find the classical rapper uh, with the misogynistic lyrics, violent, racist. And what does he wear around his neck? Uh, bling diamond cross. <sighs> giving expression to some form of religion. Here's another one. Uh, where I am with them?
0: And a juxtaposition possibly of, uh, of capitalism as a religion and self-sacrificialness of Christianity as a religion.
1: And you can read it in all kinds of ways, but, but you, you cannot deny that there is some kind of expression of religion, at least an impulse from religion that creates that kind of jewelry to be regarded as cool by somebody who, who is uber cool and perhaps fits none of the classical virtues ascribed to Christianity. I mean, with the violence and the, and the, and the sexist lyrics, etc. Another example. I live in one of the two countries in Europe which compete with each other for being not only a-religious, but slightly anti-religious. These two countries are the Czech Republic and Estonia. And Estonia, because the church never had a a role in the founding of the country. And after communism, when people, in fact, went back to church because it was something new to do, the church is handled very poorly. So the uh, the society is by and large not only a-religious, but slightly anti-religious. Yet... I have yet to meet a society where I hear so much about Jesus, not Jesus um, and, and, and about God, not Jesus and God as uh, forms of expression or uh, in praise or worship, but as swear words. Constantly, in every second, or third sentence you can hear the divine names being used in crossways, uh, in, in crossways. If your go-to swear word is still a religious swear word, then you have something. I mean, there's some reception of a religious heritage. If, you, if, if there was no shock value to, to these religious terms, you would not use it. So there's still some kind of perception of religiosity. Blasphemy works only if there's some kind of emotive response to it. If I am angry and I say, Zeus. People would look at me strangely because we don't have any sense of the holiness of Zeus. But if I use the word God or the name of Jesus in such a way, then there's at least some kind of sense. So my point about these two, not only a, but slightly anti-religious country is they're not. Religion is alive and well, not in the way that the churches might prefer it, not in the way that you will find in the hallelujah song. But the religious impulse is here, and that's part of the the value of post-secularism, that we realize the impulses of religion are around us and in us and through us the whole time. Let's acknowledge it, like Foucault and Marx and Freud helped us to acknowledge other aspects of our lives. Let's acknowledge that faith is here and we don't see any, any future without it.
0: I like the way you, you, you're phrasing that, that it contextualizes it. Amongst other contributions that have just become normalised, it's just a part of us. Whereas this is not yet a part of us; it's not yet a part of how we think in general.
1: It will take time. It will take time. It's uh, South Africa is a highly religious country. In South Africa, you sit in a bar having a beer. uh, You tell somebody I'm religious, they move away. You tell them I'm spiritual, they move closer. Um, But there's some kind of resonance for religion. If you do that here. The moment you mention religion, people move away. You mention spirituality, people move away. They do not want to do it. There are religious people. The church is not inactive. Alternative religions, new religious movements are here the time. But the moment those people leave the room, the other people talk badly about it. So you find these different sentiments about or receptions of religiosity. But it is not as if it is nothing. If a specialist on the economics of Mongolia in the 12th century enters the room or leaves the room, we don't speak about that because there's no emotional resonance, there's no experience or feeling that this was somehow touched on a nerve. So religion is still something.
0: These things like religion don't disappear. And, in the same way that we find these these conscious and unconscious conversations still continue, you know you know the science versus religion tension that goes back to early modernism continues today as though it is still relevant and and I keep bumping my head against it. Uh, and fortunately talking to a lot of people where it is no longer relevant. They don't, they don't actually have a, a tension between those things anymore. But, but when we look back, you know, from, from the position of the, of post-secularist understanding, the ideas of modernism, the ideas of post-modernism, do they still have the place? Do they disappear? What about pre-modernism? You know, we've got pre-scientific mindsets.
1: These things never disappear. All of them, all these impulses have been present the whole time. The one is just more dominant than the other. You find that uh, uh, with highly intellectual academics, for instance, who do everything according to the book, and I don't mean the good book, I don't mean the Bible, I mean according to the, the, the textbook on biology, on physics. And then they read every Sunday what, this, from the, what the stars predict about the coming week. Maybe a slightly joke, which is interesting, but... So the impulses are there. All of us have this. We we should not expect the species homo sapiens to be rational in any respect, whether you're a-religious or anti-religious or whichever form of religiousness you are on the continuum that exists. uh, You should not expect people to give logical expression to that the whole time. People, co- coherency or the whole time making sense is not part of who we are as a species, as humans. We already have that in the writings of Paul, that I do the things that I, that I don't want to do. And you, you have that in your own life. Sometimes you call it sin. You can have that with people who are extreme rationalists, who reject every form of religion. And then every Sunday they come together to, to help each other to formulate this better. But it's every Sunday, and they come together, and there's an introduction, and somebody makes a lecture, and there's a question. It sounds like a liturgy. One of the as people realize that religion is not dead, it's around us all the time, you find more and more that religion becomes a metaphor for describing normal aspects of life, such as the political scene, such as literature. We already added some time sometime ago that people would describe going to a rock concert, similar to going to a revival meeting, a religious revival meeting, or going to a sports event. Um, there's the holy food of the hard dog and the coke, or perhaps the biltong and the nachi. You sit in the assigned position. There are songs to sing. Um, you stand up, you sit down. Uh, there are heroes. There's somebody who leads the whole thing. He has a little whistle in his mouth. Uh, you see these repetitions of religion everywhere. It doesn't mean... All of these are expressions of religion, but they are certainly at least parallel to religion. And post-secularism helps us to see these parallels more and
0: more. In, in some senses, that's coming back to the thing of, of going religiosity is an aspect of people. And so you can be a card-carrying, Bible-burning atheist, you know, as, in, as, as anti-religious as they come, but your beliefs exhibit religious behavior and they, they've got the same characteristics of religious commitment and as a faith position, et cetera, et cetera. And there again, I, I, I try to be gentler these days because I, you know, in my youth, I used to fight with a lot of religious people, especially at this Jesus thing. And in my, in my later years, I've, I, I've, I've encountered a lot of atheists and given them similar bats because they're exhibiting religious beliefs, but they don't see it. Perhaps post-secularism, there's a lot in the language of it that's going to enable us to appreciate this dimension within, it, within it, what we are as people, and then basically the range of it as well, from dysfunction to function. If,
1: if religion means nothing to you, then you devote no attention to it. You go about your life. If you see the church, you walk by, by the architecture doesn't attract you. you if you hear handles, uh, hallelujah, I think... Uh, don't even notice it. If you listen to the American Hot 100 and 40% of the lyrics of the songs have reference to religious themes, then it passes you by. You you don't even notice it. Then you live a life which is, call it religion free. It, It doesn't speak to you. It doesn't touch you. You go with no expression. That is one thing. On the other hand, if you write the one book after the other against religion, Then you're involved with religion the whole time. You may do it as a missionary crusade because you think religion is bad for humanity and part of your calling, perhaps a bad word, in life to to destroy religion, but you're still devoting your time and, and your energies and making a life, and perhaps good money even, from writing about God, church, faith. A good example in South Africa is the most influential rock group, Fokof Pulisikar, that is simply the name of the band. hugely influential, no band has drawn larger Afrikaans crowds than them. No band has had more spin-offs from them, had greater influence in in the musical style, in the lyrics, in the way lyrics and and tonality fit together, and lyrics and tune fit together. Nobody has been more influential. When they put together their... CD of after 10 years of the 16 greatest hits, 15 of the 16 songs were about religion. Against religion, saying how bad religion is bad-mouthing religion. But if those are your most popular songs over a decade, and you are so influential, you cannot say that religion is nothing. If religion was nothing, you would be singing about love or flowers or about war or about more serious topics. But if almost every song, It's about religion. Then religion is important to you. You don't don't escape that. And what post secularism post secularism helps us to recognise is these impulses that they are alive and well.
0: The one thing bands like that bring together is experience. They you know and they give people handles for experience and expressions. You know music plays a plays a role for people. So so if I think of that, if we bring the the conversation to the, to those three uh, phases that run in parallel and in sequence and exhibit all those wonderful things of the stages of grief of how, you know, you go back and you hold to all three at once, et cetera, et cetera. And we think of, of the, the the pre-modern, the modern, the post-modern. What does this change in mindset mean? If we if we think of terms like life, reality, God, bring that together to experience, we're changing our thinking from going. Let's just understand religion in its historical context, its historical roots, with perhaps the assumption that that the experience of God is not available today. You know, like many modernists, many modernists can be deists and 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 functional atheists, even as Christian believers. You know, we, we change we change across the postmodern, and they go, Well, it's just a language game, it's just a meaning that you have from the language that you use, the image or the symbolism that evokes a change in you. There's not necessarily a person or reality or anything behind that. Th- this change over to the post-secularist language. What are the implications for that, for us thinking about the reality and the non-reality of God?
1: On the normal day-to-day life, accepting that religion is a normal part of life. There's nothing exceptional about religion. Whether you believe or not believe, that's not the question, because if you don't believe, that is an expression of religion too, expression of faith too. But it's a normal part of life, such as loving, such as eating, such as sport, such as uh uh, going for a walk. Religion is just a normal part of life. There's nothing exceptional about it. How that plays out on a societal level is that in societies where governments assume for themselves the right the, to make laws about religion simply by the fact that it is religion, that makes no sense anymore. Um, you, ca- you cannot ban something because it is religion. Because Do you ban something because it is food? or because it is sport? Do you legislate about simply because it is? Um, of course, you can legislate against providing poisonous or bad food to people. That's one thing. But you cannot legislate about food per se. Therefore, the same legislating about religion per se somehow makes no sense because it's just a normal part of life. So on the individual level, it's just normal part of life. On a societal level, the way laws, politics, etc. cetera play out, out, but also on a metaphysical level, that we can recognize completely that uh, the uh, reality of God is such that it is real. It is not something that doesn't exist. God is not something that doesn't exist, or it's just a metaphor. It is, for most people, and in the effects of society that you can see, completely realist. Uh, it's not notional. It is there. You can trace Yes, the modernist in me. You can trace the impulses from religion and how they play out into human rights and then have an effect on the laws which give me a ground to stand on when I stand in the courts or when I speak to policemen who I am as a human being. That you recognize these things for what they are. The, uh, there, there are a few ways to say that. And, and different uh, influential writers have said this in the past. One way of saying this is that it has been clear, become clear from history that if you take away God from society, God from people's lives, you do not replace it with people believing nothing. You replace it with people believing any old thing. So that's, that's the one way of formulating. it. We see that a little bit with, with modernism, that because the religion proper, as it used to be understood, disappeared, uh, no, not disappeared, was suppressed from public society. It was alive and well under the, under the uh, blanket, but was repressed from public society. All kinds of other forms of religiosity have come to the fore, to the point that all of us have now to recognize that religion is, number one, present, number two, diverse, number three, influential in people's lives, in society, uh, that we do not live without metaphysics. Uh, We may pretend that we live without metaphysics, but there's no such thing as living without metaphysics. We can have good metaphysics or bad metaphysics, but there's no such thing as no metaphysics. It doesn't exist. And and that means that the world in which we live is no longer a shallow world, uh, quite a flat world in which it's only us. It's us and the above human and how we relate to each other
0: when you look around, there is on one hand fundamentalism, which is almost a throwback it 's looking to the past and trying to anchor something very specific and then you 've got the present where people are going i 'm open to real experience it's it's experiential it's relational it 's engaging but but most of all it's that it's that first person you know i I can find this for myself do you see the, the, the concepts of God, the language of the transcendent has often been shaped in one way or another. So, so as I look back and I think about it, I think the, the, the early period of, you know, Western expansionism and that kind of stuff, there was, was also related to a collapsing everything into Christ, you know, in some way I came across a religion and they had these ideas and look at, it pointed towards, pointed towards Christ that's so collapsed in that. A, a second phase as I see it, seems to be everyone collapsing everything into into Buddhism, uh, not just in terms of like mindfulness meditation, but but even some of the, the the notions of of the early and the later essentialism. And you know, there's the collapsing of everything into you know even the language of illusion. I, I'm kind of hoping that there's there's more room within this emerging culture for us to nuance and diversify our language of the transcendent, so that the impersonal and the personal become important. But I, f- I feel like in terms of looking forward rather than in terms of going back.
1: And, and even more than the language of the transcendent, just the sense of the transcendent. In, in the spirituality discipline we, we draw, uh, in, in which I work at the university, we draw on a long history of trying to formulate the unformulatable. So you, the, the idea of silence in the presence of God. So even though if you realize the metaphysical presence here, you, you you cannot put it into words and you don't have to because the experience is so concrete and people sense the experience from you. Perhaps later you can write about it as happened with mystical encounters that some years later people write about it in poetry or in quite erotic text in order to convey something about this above human experience that I had. But the, the sense of the presence of the divine, the awareness of the metaphysical, that you can give expression to. Most forms of of religion in Western and Westernized society, it's very verbal, you state how things are, but they also have the quiet side. They're more uh, working more with sensibilities and awareness that is there and you see it in your life and you see it around and it's expression of faith, an expression of a mystical orientation to life and a very much spiritually aware of things but it doesn't mean you have to write books about it or uh, start a church or a radio station or something like that. Um, it is just that the divine is present.
0: Or a podcast like this, like some of us have. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's impossible to speak about God. It's impossible not to speak about God. So the same with these kinds of sensitivities. Impossible to speak about it. But then how do you convey anything? Well, you try, you try, you use better for examples, etc. But we know that the ultimate is the silence in the presence of God.
2: Christian, I wanted to ask, as you kind of look forward through a lot of what you've talked about now, and I'm thinking specifically around these kinds of phases of dominance that you talk about, you know, the pre-modern, modern, post-modern, etc. And what it describes to me is almost this kind of war within, within humanity itself around which, which of these primary experiences or primary stimuli are going to, going to take precedence. Do you see looking forward a sort of an integrative future where paradoxically those are allowed to all take their space within humanity as we kind of uh, move? Are we moving towards a more integrative future? Or is that question itself even arising from perhaps one of those phases? of
1: If we live in an era of peace, I mean, we, we live in an era now which people have been calling the long peace because internationally there's been such a long era of peace. If you continue like that, I think there will be a more natural integration. Not integration becoming the same, but evaluating each other and valuing each other and encouraging each other to be as you would like to be. But there are few things that could disrupt all of this completely. This year of 2020 with the virus has shown us that things can happen which change everything quite dramatically. So there are different possibilities. If, for instance, a militant form of Islam becomes very dominant in the world. Then we're going to have the religious future play out differently. And that is not off the South African agenda. I mean, the kind of things that are happening right this moment in the northern part of Mozambique, which is not far from South Africa, is is really quite negative. So, so that's the one... Let's, uh, call it a danger sign of a negative form of, of uh, uh, spirituality of religion that may play out. There's also something else that that uh, can dramatically influence the next 300 years, and that is China, huge country, um, becoming economically quite dominant, and not in a soft way. One has to play the game of China uh, according. To the way it understands it rather than on your own terms. And ask any of the million Muslims in. Uh, uh, enforced camps in China right this moment and they will confirm that this is in fact true.
0: Classically not a traditionally open-minded society I think to put it mildly.
1: Not, n- not liberal the way that we understand liberalism. Yet y- there's some interesting possibilities. Some people have predicted that this kind of negative reaction we see almost out of the blue, It's not completely out of the blue, but almost out of the blue at the moment against religion. Especially Christianity and Islam but more fiercely against Islam. Some people are predicting that this is kind of a last, uh, the muscles on the dead animal cramping, Um, not because China is dead, but because this uh, anti-religious impulse or sentiment within Chinese leadership may well be dying. And this is the last cramps of it um, that we see as, as, as that horse dies with the prediction that goes along with it, that China may well, within years or perhaps mm, a decade or two, decide, you know what, we cannot throw out religion. Um, Confucianism, which is very important in China, uh, fits very well with the world religions. Why don't we uh, accommodate one of these? And then the two dominant ones within China, Chinese uh, borders would now be either Christianity or Islam. If the Chinese ruling party decides formally we adopt religion A, number one, it's going to be a pretty watered down form of that religion because it will have to accommodate to the power politics in China, it will have to accommodate to Confucianism. But be that as it may, all, all religions are adaptable, so we'll be able to make that move. If China makes a decision for religion A, That means that religion for the next 300 years is going to have a huge influence internationally, whether anybody else likes it or not. Um, So that's another kind of unpredictable factor. If it happens, as some people have started to predict that could happen, that influences everything as well. The way that religion will play out, certainly the Confucianist influences will spread across the globe along with the cheap packet of, uh, of children's toys that you buy, I formulate t- tongue-in-cheek. But these influences will come, so that will change things too. Of course, ecological disasters, another it's a third thing that could change everything. If the planet comes to some kind of meltdown, much more dramatic than we see now with the virus, that changes everything too. Um, so we, we, you cannot predict the future 100%. Let's hope for a future of stability and peace, not for the sake of stability, but for the sake of people living their lives as they like, without war, without torture, without unnatural death. Uh, uh, then I see uh, a future of greater appreciation for religion, not meaning that atheists, and anti theist and anti-religious impulses will go away. In fact, they will probably become st- stronger, and in fact, I regard that as healthy, that it will become stronger, but that the idea of religion, of living a life of faith as being quite normal will become more and more acceptable. And for me, that is, number one, very healthy for what faith is, a normal aspect of life. Number two, for the churches, we'll uh, take it positively because it means more acceptance, greater acceptance. But then along with the danger signs, that a more muscular form. And I mean that in a negative form, uh, ne- negative sense that uh, we have to deal with muscular expressions of religiosity as well um, to uh, try to weed out the negative impulses along with that. Uh, The fundamentalism that you mentioned a little bit earlier, the way that played out in the USA was for very concrete reasons that the kind of rationality within American society in the 1800s, the way that it developed, was reacted against because the churches had no other way in formulating their their faith In the face of these impulses from modernism, these highly rational impulses, and they fell back on taking the biblical text quite literally, and it meant didn't mean in fact it didn't mean taking the text of the biblical of the Bible quite literally. It meant reading the biblical text through the eyes of Augustine. Um, So it was third, fourth-century theology that they fell back onto. There are very good reasons for that, and we may see that certainly continues to this day, and. Those impulses will play out in the future as well, no doubt. Um, And it is part of our uh, work, our calling, as people trying to think through through these things, to engage with that, to try to steer it. We cannot steer people. That's an awful formulation. But to try to analyze it, perhaps help make society and societies better so that the most negative impulses of religion and the most most negative is violence to try to...
0: That's brilliant. I like that.
1: (laughs) Too much to say, I'm afraid. It's uh, 10,000 thoughts in how long have we been speaking? About an hour.
2: Well, it supports your comment earlier about uh, the thickness of textbooks, etc. If you're going to actually rigorously uh, embed yourself in something rather than... uh, just having sent us a tweet. So I think that's uh, highly
0: appreciated. This is an opening discussion. Now, I'm hoping one conversation among many that we're going to have on, on this as a podcast around, around us. Uh,
1: um, for me, that would be fantastic. For me, this is very positive.
0: Thank you. So we're just scratching the surface of some of these things. I feel like there's so many, there's so many different trajectories and rabbit holes to pursue off this as a, as a, as a, as a subject.
1: You, you're completely right. And you can choose the, the smallest of them and write a whole dissertation about it. And still, and still, then you haven't said everything about it.
0: Yeah, I, I might just do that. So <laughs> I, I see the gauntlet laid.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much to the two of you. I appreciate this very much. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much. It's a real privilege to have you join us for this.